Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Charlie Matz, filling in for Ben Blakey. It's Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. It was 1994. My mom put my brother and I into her Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme station wagon and drove us across town to an unfamiliar building. As we drove in, I read the sign, United Methodist Church. We walked inside, sat in a pew, and the service began. Not long into the service, all of a sudden, everyone began to chant. Or at least that's what it sounded like to a kid who never really stepped foot into a church the previous 14 years of life. What was this mantra that they were reciting, Our Father, hallowed be thy name? As an unchurched 14-year-old, it freaked me out a little bit. Why were these people repeating this chant? Why all together? And as we went back several weeks in a row, why did they do the same thing every single service? Well, fast forward to 2002 when I got saved and put my trust in Jesus Christ. As I started to read my Bible on my own, I remember the day I arrived at the Lord's Prayer. This is it, I thought. This is what they used to chant. But why? I still couldn't figure it out. Then one day, a pastor explained to me that the Lord's Prayer is a way to pray, not a prayer for us to repeat necessarily. You see, musicians can either learn how to read music or they can learn to play by rote, by watching someone and just repeating what they're doing. The benefits of the former far outweigh the latter, so that you can apply your talent to any song ever written in the world. The same goes for prayer. You can pray by rote, following exactly what Jesus prayed, repeating his every word, or you can learn how to pray by his example, giving you unending prayers before our Holy Father. And here we are in Luke 11, 1 through 13, ready to learn how to pray from Jesus himself. Now, I want to break down the template here a little bit of the Lord's Prayer, because for me, it's helped me immensely. And maybe this will be valuable to you when you're going for a walk or you're driving along and you need a template. You need something to help you move along through your prayers. And the Lord's Prayer is great because it gives us some ideas, some categories to pray. Let's walk through those. First, Father, hallowed be your name. We want God to be honored and glorified. We want God to use our lives to glorify him. We want to have a higher view of him. We want everything we do to be about him and not ourselves. Second, your kingdom come. We want to see God's kingdom advanced on this earth by people putting their trust in Jesus Christ and living for him. And we want to anticipate the return of Christ, that he will find us living by faith when he comes to consummate the kingdom forever. Third, give us each our daily bread. We do need to pray for our physical needs, but this prayer helps us to focus on our daily needs, having faith that God will provide, even when we don't see how it's going to work out tomorrow. You see, even the prayer for our physical needs is really a prayer of faith. And we need to notice that ultimately this is the only request out of the six that we're going to cover that is about our physical needs. Fourth, forgive us our sins. This is not a prayer for God to forgive us of our sins at salvation, but rather this is a prayer of confession for God to forgive us for ongoing sins. And side note, if anyone ever tells you that Christians can achieve perfection in this life, a common false teaching today, the fact that Jesus taught his disciples to confess their sins as part of their daily prayers is 
one of the many pieces of evidence that perfection cannot be achieved in this life, but only in the next when we are glorified with Jesus. And really this part of the prayer is a good reminder that regular confession before God is a practice in humility and really important to God. Fifth, for we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We must forgive others. Perhaps this is a time to think about those who have wronged you and forgive them in your heart. You want to know the best way to work to forgive someone else? It's to pray for them. Many times when I get to this place in the Lord's Prayer, I pray for those in my life that have hurt me in some way, helping me to forgive them and have compassion for them. And sixth, lead us not into temptation. Although we should rejoice when we're faced with trials, we should always pray for God's protection that we may not be found in a situation where we are tempted to sin. This is a great opportunity to pray for yourself, your family, and your church, specifically church leadership as well. Pray that God would protect the church, your family, and your own life. I want to be honest with you. Prayer is hard. And anyone who's walked with the Lord for any number of years knows that this is true. It's probably the discipline that I, as a pastor, see needing the most improvement in the life of most Christians I meet. But there is more to gain from prayer than any other discipline you could put your energy into. And so I plead with you to develop a life of prayer. And praise God that he has given us a way to pray. And one thing that I've noticed is as you pray and you pray faithfully, God continues to give you more and more strength and focus to pray more and more and to get better and to flex that muscle and grow that muscle more and more as a Christian. And as we look at the rest of the passage, I want us to focus on two distinct thoughts. First, we read the story of the friend at midnight. What can we learn from this passage? We need to pray persistently, continually coming before the Lord to ask him for what we truly need. Second, we read the passage where Jesus teaches us about how God wants to answer our prayers. What can we learn from this passage? We need to pray expectantly. So overall, the first 13 verses of Luke 11 help us to pray biblically, pray persistently, and pray expectantly. And speaking of prayer, our Old Testament passage in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 3 It really starts in verse 4 with this prayer showing us Nehemiah's heart. But first, let's start with a few bullet points about the book in general, since we're starting Nehemiah today. The events of this book took place in 445 BC. Nehemiah is sent by King Artaxerxes to go rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Now, there is intense opposition to the rebuilding by other people in the land, but Nehemiah prevails through the strength of the Lord. The overall theme of this book has to do with the Lord's protection for his people and the need for his people to keep the law and stay faithful in their worship. Now, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, we see Nehemiah's heart. He has a high view of God, and he has the right view of sin, and he also has a right view of the way his people have sinned against God, so he pleads with God for mercy. And in chapter 2, although Nehemiah stands before a powerful king, he recognizes that God is still in control. It says this in verse 8, And the king grants me what I asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. And so Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem with some men, and he lets them know, once they arrive, the plan to rebuild the wall. But these characters that were introduced earlier in chapter 2, they show up at the end of chapter 2. These are kind of like the enemies of the story, the enemies of the building of the wall in Jerusalem. This time, they're more vocal about their opposition to the wall being rebuilt. Being rebuilt. And starting in verse 19, it says this, But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant and Geshem the Arab 
heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. How amazing is it that we serve a God who doesn't change? And Nehemiah is putting that on display here. He is there in the name of the Lord. And we can trust God's promises. And when God has given us a mission, like he's given Nehemiah here, God will see it through despite the opposition or even the apparent harm that it will bring upon us or those that we love. We must trust God and continue in the strength and in the name of his name, not our own name. And then what does Nehemiah and the men who are with him do? They get to work, right? He says, hey, I'm here to do God's work. And I come in the name of the Lord. And then they get to work. They're repairing things left and right. The sheep gate, the fish gate, the gate of uh, Yeshanah, the or the gate of the old city, the valley gate, the dung gate, and the fountain gate. There's all these gates they're rebuilding. They're rebuilding this wall. These guys didn't delay. They didn't hesitate. And they did the hard work of the Lord that was necessary. And so what can we learn from this ultimately in this passage today? Trust the Lord and get to work. Trust the Lord and get to work. That's what we need to do. Not get distracted by opposition, but do what God has told us to do. And really in the church, that is to make disciples. Let's trust the Lord and let's get to work. And and why do we get to work? To earn our salvation, to earn our favor with the Lord? No. And we are reminded of this fact in our New Testament reading for today in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. And this starts off with the word therefore, because it's picking up on what we read yesterday. We learn that we are alive in Christ because he died and rose again. Therefore, we start today, don't let anyone disqualify you because you don't partake in outward acts of piety is basically what Paul is saying. Paul says, they have the appearance of wisdom. So they look like they're wise, like they're doing all the right things, but really they're doing them for the wrong reasons. See, the false teachers of their time were arguing that certain Jewish observances were necessary for spiritual growth. There are a few things Paul lists off, but a few worth mentioning is first, asceticism. A simple way to put this is making yourself uncomfortable for the sake of being more righteous or lowly. You have this appearance of poverty, but it's inflicted on yourself to produce this type of exterior fake righteousness. Woe's me, you look really righteous as you're suffering for Christ. And then he talks about worship of angels, probably calling upon the help of angels for spiritual help. And this type of thing, we even see it in our own culture, makes people appear more spiritual to the rest of the world. But the bottom line is this, that these false teachers were advocating a self-made religion. And as Pastor Ben said in his sermon this weekend, there are only two types of religion in this world, religions of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. And the only religion that fits this mold of divine accomplishment is biblical Christianity. And praise God that Jesus paid it all. That's the thing we need to remember the most when we come across a passage like this. Uh, And ultimately, Paul's going to unpack that as we continue on in Colossians. But Jesus paid it all. We do not need to have these exterior acts of righteousness to somehow prop ourselves up of being worthy of God's love or forgiveness because we aren't. Jesus is the only one worthy to take on the punishment for our sin. And I say it often, when the Bible is silent, let your words be few. And today I want to say, be careful to not get caught up in a list of man-made traditions that you have to keep in order to be a good Christian. That's the way we can somehow sometimes fall into this trap. It's worth evaluating 
what we find ourselves holding as important as a part of our routine in our personal lives and our family and in our church. Again, Pastor Ben said it well this weekend. If I was to ask you, if you died today, would you be confident that you'd go to heaven to be with God? And if your answer is yes, then the reason better not be because you do good things or have a good life. No, your answer should be because of what Jesus has done, that you have put your trust in him and not yourself. And God's grace is so amazing. Who would possibly refuse this offer of God's grace of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins? We just need to repent, turn from our sins and put our trust in him. But the Bible says those who would refuse this offer, this offer of the gospel of free grace, it describes them as fools. And our reading in Psalm 94 verses 8 through 15, it starts out by proclaiming in verse 8, understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? Now, there's something going on in this psalm that is fascinating to me. When the psalmist says, O dullest of the people, he's referring to the people. The people are really the people of Israel. So even though they were part of God's chosen people, they are not being obedient to God's word and therefore foolish or dull. And as the psalm continues on, it's clear that there are those who are faithful in Israel, those who God cares for as his righteous people, and there are those who are unfaithful, the wicked. And this is such a great reminder for us that although we might be part of a great Christian family or part of a terrific church that is faithful to teach and obey God's word, regardless of our affiliation with those things, our lives come down to this. We must know God's word and do God's word. It's really that simple. Thanks for digging into God's Word with me today on Revival from the Bible. Ben Blakey will be back on August 25th. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.